We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16 this morning. If you want to open your Bibles, Matthew 16. Continuing on through what is just a, a phenomenal gospel. Um, no surprise there. Last week, uh, we looked at um, Peter's response to Jesus, his very important question of who do you say that I am? And if you think about it, there's not a more important question in the universe to, to consider and to get the answer right. Um, who do you say that Jesus is? Now, Peter, who didn't always seem to get things right, nailed this one. He got like a, he, he got an A plus 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 on the answer to this one, which was pretty good for for Peter. Um, he confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and um, the cool thing is that Jesus actually confirms this confession. He, he, he tells them they got it right. So now they know for certain that Jesus is their king. And this would have been extremely exciting for a people that had been waiting for a long period of time for their Messiah to come, to rescue them and to establish their kingdom. But, but they thought the first order of business for the Messiah was going to be to make Israel great again, to rescue them from their you know, their temporal, physical situation, Roman occupation is what was going on. They didn't understand that Jesus's primary objective was actually to save them from a much bigger problem, their eternal spiritual situation. Nor did they understand the path that Jesus was going to have to take in order to make that happen, to become their savior. So you can kind of picture they've got this great excitement that the Messiah has finally come. This is just this is awesome, Jesus. Um, you know, now we don't have any questions about who you are. We've cleared that up. So, so what's next? When does the conquering begin, King Jesus? That's what's on their mind. And it's easy for us to think that same way when, when we meet Jesus. It's like, okay, now I've become a Christian. All my problems are going to go away. You're going to solve everything. And, and it's just going to be a life of ease from here on out. Well, it's not exactly how it works. So even though that's what the disciples were expecting, verse 21 um, answers the question of what's next. And it's not at all what they imagined it might be. So you can picture Jesus saying, guys, you know, I'm your long-awaited king, right? Here's the plan. Are you guys ready? And they're like, we're ready, Jesus. Give us the plan. So he starts out and he says, first, I must go to Jerusalem. And you can think, okay, that's a great start. Good. We're with you, Jesus. We like this. And then he goes, he goes on and he says, and I must suffer. Right? I'm going to suffer from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And you can kind of picture them cocking their heads to the side a little bit going, okay, that, that doesn't sound quite right. Um, but, but before they can interrupt, Jesus goes on and says, I must suffer and be killed, okay, and be raised on the third day. So you kind of think, Jesus, what are you talking about? You, this, isn't the, this isn't, you know, I don't want to second guess the king, but this sounds like a terrible plan. And it's almost like they didn't even hear the, the last part of the plan, which was the best part, by the way. On the third day, I will raise from the dead. It's like they missed that completely. Um, that literally changes everything, by the way. <laughs> makes it a really good plan. But, but not hearing that part, this would have been like a punch to the gut for these guys. You know, we thought you were going to come here to make all of our problems go, go away, and, and that's not what's happening. But it gets worse because before they have a chance to catch their breath, he gives them another truth blow. Um, he's already explained what his path is going to look like going to the cross. Well, now he's going to start to explain to them what their path is going to look like. So for those who have professed that Jesus is king, like Peter just did, He's going to explain to them what that's going to look like for them. So that's, here's the idea. If we confess that Jesus is Lord, if we confess that he is the son of God and put our faith in that, what happens next? What does he expect from us? What's it going to cost? And see, this is one of the biggest dilemmas people have when they consider whether or not they want God in their lives, isn't it? How is submitting to the Lordship of God going to impact me? 
will it benefit me in the here and now or will it limit me? Is it worth it? This is what people continually think about when, when, they, when they consider this, this, this idea. Um, and this is why a lot of people do their best to keep God at arm's length, all right? They want him to kind of stay impersonal and far off. So you guys, have, there's a term for this. It's, it's, you've heard of a theist and you've heard of an atheist. Well, there's also something called a deist. And this is what a deist believes. They believe in the existence of a creator on the basis of reason, but they reject the belief of a God who interacts with humankind. So they, they kind of view God as like a watchmaker. He makes this really great watch, he winds it up, and then he just kind of sends it off to do its thing. And he doesn't get involved, you know, maybe unless things get a little too crazy, and then maybe he'll step in for a minute. Um, and, and this is so, you know, you can kind of pic- picture somebody saying, okay, God, this is great. You can keep track of the universe, make sure it's running smoothly. Uh, I like that. Um, you know, if I get into a real bind, I'd like the chance to be able to call on you. Maybe you can, you know, come in and make things a little bit better for me if something catastrophic happens. And, you know, if, if you wouldn't mind saving me from hell, that would be great too. But other than that, you know, if you could just kind of stay in your lane, uh, don't call me, I'll call you kind of thing. This is what, I mean, this sounds terrible, doesn't it? But this is kind of what people are like. That's, that's kind of a deist. Now, why would somebody choose to believe that way? Well, you don't have to answer to God. That's, that's handy. He's not going to meddle in your life, right? We like that. He's not going to expect anything from you. And you have a little bit of comfort in case things get out of hand, right? Sounds, sounds fantastic. This is what most people, this is, describes what most people want from God. But all of that changes the minute he gets up close and personal in your life, see? So uh, for instance, like try to imagine if you can, um, just by way of example, a world leader that you admire greatly. And some of you might be going, I got nothing. Well, make one up if you can't think of one. <laughs> but try to think of a world leader that you really admire. You know, you know about them. You see them on the news and on TV. They're doing great things in the world. Um, you know, you're glad they exist. But, but you know there's no chance that you'll ever meet them or that they'll get to know you or want anything from you. So you're, you're glad they're there. You hope that they continue in their successful, you know, steering of the world in the right direction kind of thing. But that's kind of the end of your concern. But what if one day your phone rang? And on the other end of that phone is that world leader. Well, that changes everything because that means they know who you are. They know your phone number, right? They know things about you and apparently they want something from you. So this is, this is that kind of uh-oh moment. But see, this is what, what God is like. He has made contact. He's called you. He's pursued you for relationship through his son. This is why Jesus came to get up close and personal with us. So much so that um, he, he even died on the cross for us. That means God knows you and he wants something from you, namely you, right? So this truth is driven home by the way our passage ends. So, so this is 27. I'm, I'm going to read the whole thing. But 27 says, the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. So, so that means he's, he's keeping track, right? That means that what you do matters, especially with Jesus, because if, if he has sent his son into this world to, to pursue a relationship with you, he sent his son to the cross to die, and you ignore that, that's, that's a big deal. So that kind of sets the stage for our, our passage this morning, 16, 21 through 28 says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. 
But he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not set in your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, a quick disclaimer on the last verse, verse 28. Um, I'm not a selfish guy, so I'm going to save that for Chad, who's coming next week. Uh, only, only because I think the next section actually answers this question. So I'm not completely chickening out, maybe just a little. So verse 21 starts out with Jesus saying things that make absolutely no sense to his disciples. And if we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit there are times when we read God's word and we have the same kind of thing happen. Uh, we'll come across a theological conundrum or, or something that we don't understand and we begin to question God and wonder what's going on. Uh, this was an unwanted revelation from Jesus that actually causes Peter to jump into action, which Peter is pretty known to do, and he actually rebukes Jesus. I mean, can you imagine doing that? And, and yet, we kind of do that sometimes, don't we? You ever have the urge to correct God or maybe give him some friendly advice on how he might handle a situation differently than the way he's handling it in your life? Peter um, pulls Jesus aside to do this very thing. I like that he actually says he, he pulled him aside in private, which that seems like Peter's growing maybe <laughs> better than maybe normal. I don't know. But he says this, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Why would he think this way? This, this kind of thinking is still alive and well today. The idea that suffering and hardship should be far from us and never invade our space. We, you know, we kind of think that if God's involved, not, nothing bad will, will ever happen, which means that um, just like Peter, we, you know, we think what Jesus is doing wrong, but maybe, we don't get the, maybe we're not right about this. Maybe we're, we're in the wrong here. See, this, this kind of thinking is what's at the heart of, of a very wicked thing called the prosperity gospel and I use gospel, you know, lightly. I don't think it's a, a gospel at all. But you might think that you've not bought into this, but, but I hear it come out in the way we pray all the time. The minute something hard comes up, the minute something bad comes into our life, what we consider bad, our immediate prayer is, far be it from me, Lord, this should never happen to me. We're saying the same thing Peter's saying, this shouldn't be a part of my life. We can't imagine how God would want to use hard things in our life for his glory and for our good, but he does it all the time. And if there was a shred of truth to this dangerous thinking that, that the prosperity gospel holds, Jesus's life would have looked a little different, wouldn't it? Don't you think? Um, there wouldn't be a cross. That, that wouldn't fit into the picture. Think about somebody like John the Baptist. What would his life have looked like? I imagine if they would have had lifestyles of the rich and famous at that time, John the Baptist probably would have been a candidate for that show because his life was so good. Or Paul, you picture Paul like just wearing the best suits and flying in a, his own private jet around. And this is, those guys, their life was not like this. It was hard. And these were the best of the best. Jesus said, John the Baptist, there was no greater man that lived than him. And how did his life go? You know, we, we, we get this wrong. Martin Luther said it this way. He talked about that there's a theology of glory and there's a theology of the cross. Which one do you think we like better? 
We like the theology of glory. We want to find a way, as he kind of said, to, to climb the ladder to glory now and avoid any kind of suffering here and now as though it didn't have a purpose in our life. But that's not the way it works. And fortunately, Jesus didn't take Peter's advice. Okay? He knew what his mission was. He knew what it would accomplish. And this is why he spoke so sternly to Peter in the way that he did. Get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine hearing that? What's he, what does he mean here? What's he so upset about? Can you imagine Peter hearing that? I mean, he just got an A plus on the test and now he's basically given like the dunce cap and go, go stand in the corner, Peter. You got this one wrong completely. This, is, this is, sounds just like what Satan said to Jesus when he tempted him in the wilderness. All the same things he tried to get Jesus to not, to not go to the cross, to not do the Father's will. This is his, his MO. And this is why Jesus is so upset because this is why he came. This is the Father's will. These things must happen. They're necessary. He must suffer. He must die. He must rise again. Why? Because there's no other way, beloved. That's the only way for us to be reconciled to God. And anyone trying to do away with the necessity of the cross is a hindrance to the gospel and a hindrance to God. Anyone preaching a gospel that isn't Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, is also a hindrance to God and to salvation. So, you know, Peter was, without knowing it, he was like a puppet. And, and Satan was the ventriloquist. And, and he, was, he was saying stuff that was completely wrong. The cross is necessary. Otherwise, why did Jesus come and do what he did? If there was another way, why, why would he have come and suffered that way? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father but by me. And that's because there was no other way for our debt to be paid. And he was willing to do that. You know, this is why I hate works-based uh, theologies that are out there. This idea of, they always include Jesus somehow, but Jesus plus what you do, what you believe, what you, I mean, well, what you believe is important, but you know what I'm saying? It's always Jesus plus something. And, and it, the idea is that he didn't really need to come and do what he did if there's a way for us to, to do it, you know, in, in, instead of that. So the, the bottom line is we owed a debt we couldn't pay. He had to pay it for us. That's the only way for God to be justly satisfied. And, and so Jesus going and suffering in, in our place on the cross is what, what's, what pays that debt. Now, obviously, Peter didn't fully understand that yet, but he would shortly. You know, if you read Peter's epistles, he gets it. But right now, he, he has no idea. And, and so he's way off in his thinking. It's possible for us to look at the circumstances in our life and in the world and come to wrong conclusion. That, and this is what Peter did. And so you think, well, how is this possible? Jesus gives the answer in verse 23 when he says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. We tend to see things from our kind of limited perspective. I don't know if you're like me, but I tend to look at what's right in front of me. I have kind of like this man's eye view of things, and that's all I can see. And, and as Christians, we need to remember, remember to kind of take a big step back and, and get more of a God's eye view of things, look at things from the big picture, from his perspective. Uh, when we do this, when we start to set our things on the, you know, uh, on, um, the things of God, set our mind on the things of God, it begins to change the whole view of, of everything. So everything that goes on in the world that's topsy-turvy right now and, we're, and, and looks completely unstable, uh, that changes. Everything that's going on in my own life that I don't understand begins to change. Even the idea of salvation and what Jesus had to go and do, when we look at it from God's plan, of, you know, his plan of redemption, it changes everything. The thing is that God's way of doing things, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's kind of completely backward and upside down of anything I would have come up with. Um, I, I don't, it's funny how you, you, you see things like the first shall be last, 
And you're like, well, that's not how the world works. That doesn't make any sense. The meek will inherit the earth. And it's like, no, no, that's, that can't be right. Uh, the greatest among you will be servant of all. No, no, that's, that's wrong. Servants are, you know, this is Jesus's economy. This is the way God does things. And in this passage, he's going to say something else that makes no sense, that dying brings life. <laughs> it's like, well, how can that be? So for us to be able to set our mind on the things of God, it means that we need to completely reorient or change our way of thinking. And Romans 12, 2, which we read this morning already, tells us, don't set your mind on the things of man. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can test and discern what God's will is and what his plan is and, and what he wants. And we have a tendency to set our things on the, the way man thinks because it appeals to us. That's why we do it. There's a well-known verse in the Old Testament, you guys know, there's a way that seems right to a man, but where does it lead? It leads to death. And that's not the path I want to be in. I want to be on the path that leads to life, that leads to me, you know, the idea of pleasing the Lord, and that leads to us eventually hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. But when we set our mind on the things of man, it propels us in a completely different direction. So we need to learn to tell the difference between the mind of God and, and what's coming from man. And the way we do this, three things. One, consider the source. Two, evaluate the intel. And three, inspect the resulting fruit. So the first one is consider the source, which would have been easy for Peter to do because Jesus was speaking to him. So he knows the source is God. That's extremely helpful. Uh, the, the problem was Peter didn't want to accept what he was hearing. So there's that. Um, for us, I don't think we will hear from Jesus directly. There's people that claim to sometimes. That, that scares me, quite frankly. Um, but Jesus is called the Logos, the Word of God. And so, you know, there's so many people I hear that say, I just wish God would speak to me. And, and it's like, He has, He does, He will, but it's primarily through the Word. The good news is the Word is reliable and it's authoritative. We can trust what it says. Uh, when you have people saying, you know what, I, I think God told me this, or I have a word from the Lord. We need to be very careful with that. People are unreliable. People are not authoritative. They may get it wrong. So when you hear that kind of thing, number one, it has to line up with this, or you toss it out. And number two, just, I mean, maybe treat it as advice when, you, when somebody says something like this to you, but don't, it's not thus saith the Lord. That's what God's word is. The other source that we constantly get information from is the world. Uh, you turn on the news, you, you know, you, you, anything you look at as far as social media, even the comment section, you're going to be flooded with information all the time from people. And this is, this is the kind of wisdom we need to proceed with extreme caution when we hear it. Because Colossians 2.8 says, see that no one takes you captive. I just think that's a fascinating thing to think of. Somebody take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to the Christ. And, and the problem is that we, we tend to like the unreliable sources sometimes more than the reliable sources because they align with our own self-interests and they, and they have a greater appeal. And this is why we constantly need to evaluate the intel. So 1 John 4 says, test the spirits. Um, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So that means there are people that are actively trying to deceive us. That means that as Christians, it's probably good for us to every once in a while be a little skeptical. Uh, I have a problem of being too skeptical. I'm a skeptical person, but I know so many Christians that believe whatever they hear, whatever comes down the pike, they just believe it hook, line, and sinker. And maybe it would be good to do a little research to find out what, you know, I've, I've said things before and believed things and even parroted things that I've heard that were wrong. That's embarrassing when we do that, obviously. So know that people are going to try to convince us that God's word is wrong 
and they're going to try to get us to doubt what it says. It happens all the time. It's been going on since the garden. It continues to happen today. And unfortunately, it works because, like I said, there's something appealing about this to us. We love to find loopholes to make our sin okay, don't we? We love to find ways to kind of just, okay, well, this isn't maybe that bad what I'm doing. We, 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 we like that. So when we hear things that rub us the wrong way in God's word, and then we hear an alternative to it that makes us feel like maybe it's okay, we, we tend to want to go that way. So I'll give you an example. I saw a quote on Facebook this week. Um, and, and again, it wasn't anybody here. So you guys could, everybody's kind of going, <gasps> you know, not, not anybody in this room. This is somebody that I, I, I've known in the past that I know used to go to a church. I don't know if they're still going to church or if they call themselves a Christian, but at one point they did. The quote was by somebody named A.R. Lucas. I don't know who that is, but it said this, if there's ever a slight chance at getting something that will make you happy, risk it. Life's too short and happiness is too rare. Now you hear that and you think, that, that sounds good. That sounds inspirational and motivational. And I like that. I like the way that makes me feel. Uh, if you didn't like that one, here's another one. This is by Aristotle. We've all heard of him. He said, happiness is the meaning and the purpose of life, the whole aim and end of human existence. Well, good. That's, that's exactly what I want. That's a great aim. Or here's one more, and I don't know who said this one, but this is, this is a good one too. My only goal in life right now is to be happy, genuinely, intensely, and consistently happy, regardless of what that looks like to others. Now, I'm not trying to be judgmental, but I see a lot of Christians following the advice given in this quote. They're making decisions about their life, their marriage, their church, on and on and on it goes, based on the idea that happiness is the ultimate goal. What's the problem with this? What's the, the elephant in the room, so to speak? Well, let's compare them to the words of Jesus in our passage today, shall we? <laughs> Try these out. These are, these are rough. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's different, right? And you guys are all going, well, that wasn't fun. You know, thank you, sir. May I have another? Absolutely. Here's another. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here's one more free of charge. This is just another words of Jesus. It says it is better to give than receive. Do you see the difference between those? Yes. We all see the difference, but which one is more appealing to you? See, here's, the, here's, where the, here's where the problem lies. Deny yourself, take up your cross, lose your life, or pursue what makes you happy at all costs. See, this is why we need to pay attention to the fruit that grows as a result of the wisdom that we follow. Because a self-promoting person who always puts their interests first, right, will end up with a pretty miserable and lonely life. That's what's at the, the end of that road. We don't see it that way, but that's what's at the end of that road. And the eternity of that person is far worse, right? And in fact, James talks about the kind of wisdom that, that leads us to put self before everything and everyone else. And he says, this is not wisdom that comes down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. And you're like, wow, is that right? Is that true? Go to any city right now where self is king and people stopped thinking about anybody else but themselves and look at what's happening there. What you're seeing is disorder and every vile practice. That's what we're prone to when we put self as king. It results in a narcissistic, greedy person. Uh, it's very ugly. But what does Jesus say about these things? 
you know, what about, you know, the, 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 what he's telling us as far as taking up our cross. I'll admit that it doesn't sound very appealing at first, but what does it result in? Does it work? So again, we need to inspect the resulting fruit. Well, the first question is, how did it work for Jesus? Because he was literally about to do the very things he's telling us to do and, and what he's telling his disciples to do. He's about to go to the cross. And I love that Jesus, you know, he never asks us to do things that he wasn't willing to do himself. He, you know, he, he does that. He's the one that goes first here. In a very short amount of time, the disciples are going to watch Jesus carry a cross up to Calvary. They're going to watch him suffer. They're going to watch him be crucified and they're going to watch him die. And from man's perspective, how does this mission look? It, it doesn't look good. It looks like a, a failure. It looks like a waste of time. It looks like a complete and utter fruitless mission. Was it? No. I would argue that it's probably the most successful mission that's ever occurred because Jesus found a way to beat the things that plague us most, sin and death. He conquered both of them through the cross. He reversed the curse, the fall of man. He, he undid that and made it possible for sinners to be reconciled with the holy God. So looks can be deceiving. What looked like a mission bound for failure was a complete success. But of course, the disciples didn't know that yet. So when Jesus says, you know, if anyone would come after me, you know, come guys, follow the leader, do what I'm doing. It had to have sound completely counterintuitive and a little bit crazy. And it might sound a little bit crazy to you today too, to hear these words. What is Jesus actually saying here? Do we actually have to die? Maybe, but most of us, if I were to ask you right now, would you take a bullet for your faith? You know, if it was between your life and denying Jesus, we would say, no, well, I'll take a bullet. But, but that's a lot harder sometimes than, you know, laying down your life or laying down your life every day, setting yourself aside like he's asking us to do is, is sometimes harder than that. But what Jesus is saying here is that the path to life, to real life, to meaningful, joyous, abundant life comes through dying to ourselves so that Christ can live through us. And Paul puts it this way in Galatians 2.20. I love this verse. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what's the key to life? Give yours away. Give it to Jesus. Let him, let him have it and do what he wants with it. You know, this is like, I would think of John the Baptist saying, I must decrease. He must increase. This is, what, this is what the path to life looks like. You know, Jesus, his path to providing us life was through the cross and our path to finding life comes through taking up our cross, right? It, he's modeled it for us and now we have to follow the leader. And the amazing thing is it actually works. And I've seen this work on small scale stuff and I've seen it work in big scale stuff. So the, the small scale stuff is like, you guys have all been in that spot where you're, you're thinking, man, I don't, I don't want to go to church today. I just want to stay home. It's warm. Uh, I get the football games coming on soon. And or I don't want to go to the home group. It's just, I, I just, I feel like staying home and just, and then you, you know what, you don't think of it in these terms, but you, you go, you know, I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to take up my cross and I'm going to go to this thing. I can't think of one time when I did that and thought, well, that was that was a mistake. No, I'm always thinking, I can't believe I almost missed this. This was so good. How did, I, how did I think to myself this wasn't a good thing? 
And this happens all the time when it comes to sharing our faith with somebody, when it comes to, to maybe it's a sacrificial giving kind of thing. We have a guy in Lapine that uh, he's been vis- visiting a widow on her deathbed. Her husband died and he didn't even know this lady, but he thought, I'm going to go visit with her. And he, and he kept like, he was like Moses saying, God, please send somebody else. I don't want to do this. But you, you would not believe how, how rich this time was with this woman. He's connected with her family now. Uh, he's got to share the gospel with them. It's just been cool to see this little small scale thing that's turned into something that's amazing. And I'll tell you that the, the cool thing is when we're doing these things, there's never a time when I feel more alive, more full of joy than when I am, right? And, and I, I've had people say, you know, even on Sunday mornings when, when you're preaching, man, I wish that I had the, the joy and the excitement you have. And it's like, well, I wish I could tell you it was that way all the time. But the reason it's here is because of what, what I'm doing now. I'm not always like this. I wish I was, but anytime I'm, I'm doing God's work and doing, you know, partnering with my father and what he's doing for kingdom work, I'm filled with joy and purpose and, and excitement. These things are true. This is why COVID really showed me this thing in a way that, uh, yeah, I know everybody likes to talk about COVID, so you're welcome. But I'm, I'm a person that when I heard quarantine was acceptable, I was just like, oh, I've been built for a time like this. This is fantastic. I don't, I don't have to go do anything. I don't have to see anybody. And I don't have to feel bad about it. It's like, this is, this is like fantastic for me. And what happened though, almost very immediately was I became extremely depressed because I was by myself in my own head with my own thoughts, self-focused, self-absorbed. It's the worst thing for me by far. God has made it to where we find life and purpose and joy in coming after him and partnering with him and being with his people. And, uh, you know, that's the small scale stuff. The big scale stuff is the, is the type of stuff that we don't even want to dip our toe into the water. This is like giving your life away completely. And we see people doing this, right? They give their life to ministry. They become missionaries. We've got like people like Glenn right now that are in Africa training pastors. Um, the idea of sacrificing your safety or or sacrificing your, your wealth, putting yourself in situations where suffering might actually happen, even martyrdom. These are the, the kind of the big scale things. But based on what I've experienced and witnessed and read, the more we deny ourselves and give our lives to Jesus, the closer we actually feel to God and the more joy we experience. And I think all of us want to experience God on a deeper level. Do you ever just think, is there, is, there's got to be more to life than this. There's got to be more you know, and this is why I think so many churches go to extreme, uh, these extremes to try to, to give you an experience, right? It's, I call it like bouncy house church. It's the idea that you want, you know, if we, if we have fog machines and lasers and get some glitter falling down and people are going to, you know, you're going to feel something and we want to feel something, but maybe we're, maybe we're making it a little more difficult than it needs to be. Maybe the answer is what Jesus is telling us right here. You know, we interviewed this, this uh, missionary grandma on our podcast a couple months ago. This woman in her 60s uh, had a really nice life, uh, nice home, kids, grandkids, you know, the whole American dream kind of stuff going on. Uh, At age 60, somewhere in there, she decided to go to Africa to leave everything, all of her security, all of her comfort, possessions, all of that behind and go there. And I asked her in this interview, I said, I've got a hunch and I want to just test this out on you. Um, that we're always trying to find a way to experience God. And I think we're doing it in the wrong way. Um, when you went there, did you experience God in a different way than you did when you were here? And this is what she said. I would never trade what I do or the decision that I made because I get to experience God every day in a way I never did in America. And she said this with tears. And I know her life is harder now than it was before. And she's experiencing God. And it was evident 
It was so cool. The, you know, the famous missionary Jim Elliott, we've all heard this quote, but I, sometimes I hear quotes and I'm like, I don't know what that means, but it's a great quote. I'll, I'll say it too, you know. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What does that mean? There's no doubt he was called a fool because he was going to go to Ecuador. A young man, newly married, was going to go to Ecuador to reach a violent tribe of people that were probably and did actually kill him. Now, they became believers. There's a story that goes along with that. But was he a fool? No. No. What is it that we can't keep? This life and all the stuff that goes along with it. Jesus said, what would you give in exchange for your soul? And what is it that we can't lose? Christ and our eternal kingdom with him. So Matthew 6, 19 says, don't lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Moths are going to mess it up. Thieves are going to steal. Rust is going to destroy it. Store up treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. You know, we support Paul and Susan Brown, missionaries in Thailand. I don't know if you know their story, but it inspires me when I hear it. Paul was a pastor for 40 years. 40 years is a long time to pastor. And we've been doing it 12 and I'm tired. Uh, 40 years is, is, is amazing. When he retired, you know what? He would have been perfectly... It would have been reasonable for him to say, I'm going to sit on my porch in a rocking chair with some lemonade and live out the rest of my days with my grandkids. That's what I would have expected somebody like that to do. These crazy people go to Thailand to train pastors, and they've ended up, since they've been there, adopting, I want to say, 12 kids now as their own, kids that were unwanted. And they're in their 70s, and they're raising these kids as their own. They're probably going to die there because they're not, you know, they're so committed to this. And, and I think, my goodness, isn't that what Jesus is talking about? Isn't that taking up your cross? Isn't that what this looks like? And it is. And do you, do you think they regret it? Or do you think they've gained far more than they've given up? And, and I, would, I would absolutely be positive in the way they would answer that. They've gained more than they've given up. So here's the question. Do you want to experience God? He's given you the directions. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. And, and what are the fruits of doing that? Well, we get closer to God. We get to experience him more. We glorify him in our lives. We serve and love others the way we're supposed to. We make Jesus known because this is a testimony. When somebody does this kind of thing that makes no sense, gives their life away, instead of grabbing all they can get, people are going to go, what in the world? That make, doesn't make any sense. Why are you doing that? It's a testimony to the, the power of Jesus and, and the reality of Jesus. And we get to make our life count. You know, this, this last, the verse that I mentioned at the first, uh, verse 27, because I'm a kind of a negative guy, I'm a glass half empty or maybe, you know, two thirds empty. Uh, when I hear a verse like this, I'm immediately terrified because I, it says, when the son of man comes with the angels and the glory of his father, he will repay each person according to what they've done. And I hear that and go, uh-oh, that's my default. But then I think, well, I wonder how Paul and Susan Brown in Thailand hear that verse. Do they hear that verse and go, uh-oh? Or do they go, he sees what we're doing. This matters to him. He sees the sacrifice we've made. And he says, I got you. I'm going to repay you for this in my kingdom. It's worth it. Trust me. Wait for what's coming for you. It's going to be worth it. And, and I, I take great comfort in that verse. So this is like a two-edged sword. If we're living our life for ourselves, it's kind of a terrifying verse. If we're pouring out our life for him, Wow. Now, now, don't get me wrong. Salvation is because of Christ alone. It's not based on what we do with, with our, you know, it's his life. It's his righteousness gifted to us. That's how we get it. But I'll admit this idea of rewards and loss in heaven. I don't know how it works, 
But there will be those who are repaid for their selflessness, and there are those who are going to have loss and regret, regret for their selfishness. And which person do you want to be? Man, this isn't meant to be a guilt trip, but, but I, just, I just love that, you know, it's not too late to change the path we're on. Now's the time to choose that. He's laid it out and he's followed you to invite him. You know, he's invited you to follow him. Sorry. Um, will you come after him? That's where the life is. That's where the joy is. That's where the purpose is. And the time is short, beloved. You know, we've got one life and we've got a little time left. And, and I'm, I'm hoping to, to use it in a way to hear those words that we all want to hear, right? Well done, good and faithful servant. Father, thank you that we get to... Uh, we get to hear passages like this. We get to hear the words of Jesus like this. And we get to think about who you are and what you've done for us, Lord. And that is not uh, demonstrated any more clearly for us than it is on the table that is set next to us here uh, for communion. Lord, this is a table that is set for those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, who have believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of him and confessed that he is Lord and believe in their heart that he's been raised from the dead. This table is Christ for us. This is our righteousness. And we recognize that. Thank you for doing everything for us to be saved. Thank you for Jesus' body being broken. Thank you for his blood being shed so that we can have life. Lord, if there's anybody here that hasn't trusted you as Savior, I pray that today would be the day they would, they would bow the knee to you and that they would come and receive uh, communion, Lord, with you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.